Hello, my name's Frank and I'm the host of the UFO Thinker podcast. I'd always been mildly interested in UFOs, but like many people, the events of 2017 ignited a fire of curiosity for the UFO topic, which has been raging ever since. I wanted to start a podcast, but initially thought, well, I'm not an astrophysicist, I'm not a fighter pilot, and I've never even seen a UFO. I'm just a normal guy who's interested in this mystery. But that's when a light bulb went off. There are so many other people just like me who are fascinated with this stuff. So why not start a podcast to talk about it from the ordinary guy's perspective? All the BS stripped away, as a few people have said. And let's see if we can get to the truth in all of this. Thanks to everyone who's been on board with the journey so far. It's been amazing to see so many listeners tuning in. And if you're new here, welcome. You can now support the podcast on Patreon with tiers starting from £3 per month. The podcast will always be 100% free, but supporting the show in this way allows me to devote more time and make the show bigger and better. Higher tiers also include special benefits such as being able to suggest episode topics and get merchandise. And I really truly appreciate every listener whether you support on Patreon or not. So now with all of that said, let's get into today's episode. Hello and welcome to the UFO Thinker podcast. My name's Frank and let's get cracking with some more recent events. There's been a lot going on as usual. To be honest, I was actually planning on not doing any recent events episodes for a couple of weeks to just have a little break from it. But as usual, I've been uh, I've been drawn out by some various goings on. So one of the main things that's been happening is Lou Elizondo's been doing a lot of different podcasts and interviews and things like that so there's obviously been quite a few bits to talk about there um but the main particular ones that i found interesting that have happened this week is lou elizondo and sean cahill on kurt jai mungle and also lou elizondo and gary nolan on the podcast ufo with martin willis so those are the two that I'm going to be talking about quite a bit here and I've pulled out some some quotes from both of them and um, there's some what I would describe as good news and there's probably some that I would describe as not so good news as well but I'm going to give my opinion and talk about it like I always do with these things and hopefully you guys will find it interesting so I wanted to just drop a quick uh, bit of information about some of the people I'm going to be talking about in today's episode. Now some people listening to this may know exactly who these people are already, but I always try and do this wherever I can and I'm, I'm going to make the effort to try and do this more, especially in these recent events episodes, to give just to anybody who does listen who doesn't have a clue who these people are, um, just to give you some background so that you actually understand where they're coming from and it gives a lot more significance to what we're actually talking about. So some of the people I'm going to be mentioning is Jacques Vallée. So Jacques Vallée is uh, an internet pioneer, computer scientist, venture capitalist, author, ufologist and astronomer. And his scientific career began as a professional astronomer at the Paris Observatory. Vallée co-developed the first computerized map of Mars for NASA in 1963. He later worked on the Network Information Centre for the ARPANET, a precursor to the modern internet, as a staff engineer of SRI's International Augmentation Research Centre. He's a, a very important figure in the in the study of UFOs, and he was first he was first noted for a defence of the scientific legitimacy of the extraterrestrial hypothesis, but later kind of went on to suggest that it may be much more complicated than that, and promoted things like the interdimensional hypothesis. A very respected ufologist and written too many books to mention, uh, which have been kind of integral to the the modern way that people look at this topic. Uh, Gary Nolan, Dr. Gary Nolan is a professor in the Department of Pathology at Stanford University School of Medicine and his areas of research are cancer, leukemia, autoimmunity and inflammation, and computational approaches for network and systems immunology. Simply put, 
Dr. Gary Nolan is one of the world's leading scientists looking into uh, cancer and he uses equipment like this multi-parameter ion beam imager which is some of the best equipment for looking at uh, uh, basically looking at things on a very very close-up scale and uh, Dr. Nolan's efforts are to enable a deeper understanding not only of normal immune function, trauma, pathogenic infection and other inflammatory events, but also de detailed substructures of leukemias and solid cancers and their interactions with the immune system. Obviously, you can see how the area of expertise there lends itself quite well to potentially also being able to uh, investigate certain materials allegedly from UFOs or even potentially biological material. So moving on, then we're also going to be talking quite a lot about Lou Elizondo and Sean Cahill. So Sean Cahill, retired US Navy master at arms with experience in anti-terrorism, anti-piracy and maritime law, served on the USS Princeton during the 2004 Tic Tac UAP incident. Uh, and Lou Elizondo, former director of the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, ATIP, a Pentagon unit that studied unidentified aerial phenomena. Previously a senior counterintelligence officer and trained special agent who led missions during wartime and peacetime. So as you can see, they're all very interesting individuals with very strong areas of expertise. Some of that, especially the Lou and Sean stuff, will be everybody pretty much who's listens to this will already be aware of. But I thought I just wanted to drop it in there so that you get some proper context for anybody who perhaps wasn't aware. Okay, so moving on to the actual recent events then. So and this is going to be a little bit confusing, so bear with me while I tell you a story. Story time with Uncle Frank. Right, so, basically I, report, I record episodes and they go up a few days early on Patreon. As some of you will be aware if you're actually already signed up to Patreon, or you've probably heard me talk about it before. And the first thing that I'm going to talk about here is Lou Elizondo and Sean Cahill on the Theories of Everything podcast. Now... Basically what happened was I recorded an episode a few days ago talking about how I felt about Lou and Sean's comments on the Theories of Everything podcast and essentially I was a little bit um, I was a bit, a little bit disappointed to hear them generalising about certain aspects, about the UFO community in general and I felt that a lot of that interview was taken up by you know, complaining about the UFO community and I didn't feel like it was warranted for the most part and I did think it was a little bit uh, disappointing that obviously Kurt goes into a lot of effort to prepare questions and on this particular interview he did that with the help of Andy and Dan from that UFO podcast and I basically talked in my recent events episode about how I was a bit disappointed in that way. Now, my view on it's changed a little bit and what I'm doing now is re-recording that segment. The rest of the episode uh, that, that I previously recorded won't go out and it'll stay on Patreon. Uh, so anyone who's on Patreon can hear it but this is the version that's going to go out everywhere else. And I'll explain why uh, I've changed my viewpoint on it a little bit. First of all, it's one of those where cooler heads have prevailed to an extent. I mean, I recorded that episode after having just listened to it and I felt like it was a bit of a an attack on the UFO community who have let's be honest, the UFO community really has welcomed me in with open arms because I, you know, I'm relatively new to the topic. I wasn't even you know, nobody knew who I was a year ago and you know nowadays i've got a lot of friends i've met through this and uh, people who've been on the show people who get in touch with me and so on and when when i heard criticisms of the ufo community in general it, it kind of struck a nerve a little bit but the thing is is that what happened after that was i ended up putting up a, a clip about lou elizondo talking about ufo baiting on twitter and the point was Lou Elizondo saying that ATIP successfully baited UAP, which you know is a clip from Christina Gomez' um, podcast uh, interview that, that she did with Lou. And the, the tweet kind of blew up a bit, and you know it's got like two hundred likes or something. Quite a lot of people uh, interacted with it, and, and there was a ton of messages that came in. And essentially, what happened was a lot of people got in touch with me messaging commenting about that 
you know, underneath the post in the thread about how they felt about Lou Elizondo. And some of that was Lou Elizondo, great guy, what he's done for disclosure is amazing, blah, blah, blah. And some of it was really not very nice, very unpleasant and accusing him of all kinds of things. And I basically waded into the thread and started debating people. And some of it was quite reasonable debate and discussion. But some people were just saying all kinds of horrible things about Lou Elizondo that just don't even make sense. And I suppose what that all did was made me realise the extent of the grief that Lou Elizondo and, and obviously an extension of that, Sean Cahill as well, the extent of the grief that they get. Now, I knew that anyway, but this has really kind of put it into focus for me. And with that in mind, I really understand a lot better now the level of frustration that those guys must feel. And I want to clear a few things up for, for anybody who might be listening to this who has reservations about Lou Elizondo and so on. But what this guy has done, first of all, he served his country with distinction. You know, the references that, that he has had from the people who have worked with him in the past are exemplary. The guy has worked you know, very hard. He's, he's a solid patriot for his country and he's, he's never really put a foot wrong. It's not like he was dishonorably discharged from the military or something like that. The guy's like a national hero. He literally tried to weed out terrorists. You know, that that's part of what he did with his job. So when people try and discredit him by saying, you know, oh, he, he was a spy, so, he, you know, he's, you can't trust a word he says, it's nonsense. A lot of that was mentioned in this particular Twitter thread. Another thing that was that came up quite a lot was Lou Elizondo was apparently having claimed that he himself can summon UFOs. And as far as I'm aware, that's not the case. What Lou Elizondo was talking about in that particular uh, clip that I posted on Twitter was that ATIP engaged in practices to summon, or not to summon, but to, to bait UAP, to lure UAP. And that's an area that I find really fascinating. And it's not, well, I think people get the wrong idea and think that Lou Elizondo was saying that he can literally look up at the sky and summon UFOs, which don't get me wrong, some people do. That's the whole thing about CE5. People claim to be able to get into a certain mental state and communi communicate with you know, non-human intelligences. It may be that there is something to that. That's something that I've been really interested in and I'm, tr I'm trying to kind of delve into and get to the bottom of. Um, but that's a completely separate topic to what we're talking about here, or at least, you know, it, it certainly seems to be. I don't think there's any indications that CE5 was the method that ATIP actually used to bait UAP. So when people are wading in and saying, oh, this guy's talking nonsense, he's, he's a charlatan, he's a fraud, you know, he's, he's just he's claiming that he can summon aliens out of the sky they've just got the wrong end of the stick i'm sorry it's just not correct lou elizondo it's been rumored that he has some kind of remote viewing abilities now lou elizondo himself has declined to comment on that and he's certainly not tried to publicize his, himself as a guy who you know can, can summon ufos at will or can communicate with aliens now there are plenty of people like that on you know, UFO Twitter, who will claim that they have received all the knowledge of the universe from extraterrestrials and, you know, they, they go on riding in spaceships every couple of days and things like that. If you want to find people that, that claim those kind of abilities, you can find them pretty easily. But Lou Elizondo has never claimed that. Another thing that I wanted to kind of touch on here is that people are saying that Lou Elizondo is just trying to sell his book. You know, he's on a publicity run. That's why he's doing all these podcasts and things like that. And he's just trying to sell his book. And, you know, um, that that's why he does everything that he does and claims the things that he claims. And again, I'm afraid it just sounds like a lot of nonsense to me that the guy has made massive personal sacrifices. You know, the abuse that he gets online, people have made several hours long documentaries about him and tried to expose all of these details about his life and brought his family into it, you know, which is just a disgraceful thing to do for anybody. You know, if you've got a problem with somebody, take it to the person. Don't start bringing the family into it. That's just below the belt and it's totally out of order. That's the level of personal sacrifice that he has made by stepping forward. His career has also, you know, 
been affected pretty badly by this he had a pension he had a very very well-paid high up job you know doing something that he had plenty of experience in he could have just coasted through got his pension and ridden off into the sunset but Lou Elizondo didn't do that and the reason that he didn't do that is because he did what he felt was right because he feels like this is something that he wants to bring to the attention of the public because it's in the best interests of America and he wanted to raise interest within Congress to be able to push to, you know, I think, as Frank Milburn's talked about in his papers, uh, and many others have speculated, including myself, over the years as well, he wanted to unite all of these compartmentalised special access programmes and be able to actually secure proper funding to get this looked at properly. Um, because basically, ORSAP was a relatively well-funded as a program which looked into ufos and all of the associated phenomena but then that funding dried up and ate it was a, a not very well funded program there's a bit of debate as to whether it was funded or not but it certainly wasn't as well funded as it should have been considering the importance and what Lou Elizondo has done in conjunction with various people that he works with is try to really raise awareness of this because he believes it's in the best interests of America and the best interests of the American people and, and you know, the wider um, people all across the world, basically, the human race, because he believes that from what he's seen, there is something to this. Now, very much similar things can be said about Sean Cahill. And as much as I think it is fair to say that I was a little bit taken aback by the level of criticism that was leveled at the UFO community at large during that interview and I did think it was a shame because I would have liked to have seen a little bit more you know just straight up questions being answered and I suppose I was a little bit disappointed because it's a you know Kurt's got a very big channel and I thought there may have been some comments in there that could have really made a splash especially because of the way that the questions could have been thought out but actually now I actually think back on it and cooler heads have prevailed a little bit. I think perhaps I do feel like, you know, I understand where Sean and Lou's frustration is coming from. This has kind of really put brought things into focus a little bit for me. And I thought that I wanted to correct the record and, and that's why I've, I've re-recorded this segment. So yes, there are people who are a bit disgruntled with the way that that interview went. But having said that, literally the day, the day after, Lou did a fantastic interview, which I'll talk about later on in this episode, um, with um, Martin Willis of Podcast UFO with Gary Nolan on there, which was a really, really fascinating interview. At the end of the day, we're all human at the end of the day. And um, Lou and Sean on that day, I think Sean in particular was really frustrated and, and probably quite hurt and, and may have said some things that are a little bit out of character for him. But you know what? that's fine we're all human and I understand that he was frustrated about it and what we have to remember is that you know at the end of the day what Lou and Sean have done for this topic is absolutely massive and and we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for those two guys particularly Lou Elizondo and uh, I just wanted to kind of correct the record on that. But let me talk a little bit before I get into the other Lou Elizondo interview with uh, with uh, Martin Willis and uh, the one that also had Gary Nolan on there. I'll talk a little bit about the actual tweet uh, that, I, um, that, I, that I put out. So what it was was a clip of Lou Elizondo confirming that ATIP actually took part in UFO baiting. So, so the capability exists to actually be able to bait UAP. You have to excuse my voice because uh, I've actually got a, yet another cold. I think it's the 10th one this year. Absolutely shocking state of affairs, but I have a little girl who's at nursery, so you do tend to bring all manner of bugs back with you. You'll be pleased to know <clears throat> the next segment, I, don't, I didn't have a cold when I recorded it, so my voice will be miraculously healed in about 10 minutes' time. Uh, or in a few minutes time but yeah the, the actual tweet that i put out was a clip um where lou actually says and i'll just i'll read out the quote of what he actually says here so he says everybody now knows that we tried to do that in atip referring to uap it turns out that these things can be pretty successful if you know what you're doing 
Now, this is something I had mentioned on the podcast the other day, and I had actually talked about this a little bit as well. And that is really fascinating to me. And the bit just before that as well, he's talking about how you can you can gather intelligence by being able to predict patterns. So the big questions that I have, and, and anybody who's interested in, in the big drama that unfolded around that particular tweet, you can go to my profile on Twitter, at UFO Thinker, and you can check it out for yourself. Basically, loads of people weighed in. Uh, unfortunately, the, the people who made that horrible documentary about Lou um, slandering him, they waded in and started saying all this horrible stuff about him and posting links to the documentary and whatnot. And um, loads of other people weighed in with, with really interesting comments about various aspects of how you might bait UAP, what are the, the methods involved and that kind of thing. And it really is an area that I'm very fascinated by at the moment and I'm really trying to get to the bottom of. And if you listen to my interview that I've just done with Ross Coltart, which went out a couple of days ago, I actually asked Ross anything that he knew about it and really kind of tried to drill down into what Ross has heard from his sources and things to do with it. And I think the, the the big questions that I have around UFO baiting at this moment in time, the, the questions basically that, that linger for me is what were the methods used? How, how do they define success? So when they say that they had success, what does that mean? And what actual intelligence were they able to gather from these UFO baiting experiments? Now, these are the options that I think are available in terms of what the bait may have actually been. And like I say, I don't think it's Lou Elizondo, you know, putting a wizard's hat on and shaking a magic wand at the sky. That's just silliness. I think what it actually may be is there could be some elements of what they call CE5, cognitive human interface, remote viewing, some kind of mental aspect to it, possibly. And we know that the have been programs to look into these things over the years so it would stand to reason that if you're doing everything you can to try and figure out a way to to lure uap into into the area that you're in they may have used elements of that but also the one that gets mentioned time and time again is nuclear material possibly the moving around of nuclear assets like nuclear weapons or even nuclear propelled vehicles like uh, nuclear powered submarines or air, aircraft carriers or oh, the other one is something that Ross Coltart had mentioned on the show, uh, which is when, when I spoke to Ross a couple of days ago, and that one is um, a certain frequency of pulsed electromagnetic waves, and that one is something that's been discussed for a long time now as well. And obviously the other thing is the potential for certain individuals who seem to be like, as, as Gary Nolan has put it in the past, a beacon sort of almost like certain people have an anomaly where they seem to attract UAP activity a little bit more than, than other people. And what really intrigues me is what which of those methods or what combination of those methods did they use? What were they able to gather in terms of intelligence from those experiments? And what exactly did this success look like? And it does occur to me and a few people had also mentioned about this, that the 23-minute video which has been mentioned, was that a result of what came about through their UFO baiting experiments? If this 23-minute video really does exist, whatever it was that was filmed, is it something that they actually baited out? Anyway, having said all that, let's get back to the next point of recent events that's took place. There's been a lot of other very, very interesting comments which I'm going to talk about from Lou and from Gary Nolan in the interview that, that took place uh, over the last few days and, and we're going to go into them and talk about them. So as well as uh, all the stuff that I was just talking about, there were lots of other interesting things mentioned and one of the things actually early on in the episode with Kurt Jaimungle was some comments about the time traveller hypothesis. And Lou basically seems to question the, the the human future human time traveler hypothesis. His comments to me sort of suggesting that he's saying that the, there may be some elements of that worth looking into, but perhaps it's just not as simple as future humans coming back in time to save us. There are some definite questions to be asked about how viable that kind of thing is. 
Um, and he's actually asked about time manipulation as well on the Martin Willis uh, podcast UFO channel. And he says, quote, so this is Lou saying this, quote, there was some very compelling information that was provided to us while we were in ATIP that led us to believe that the way we perceive time may not be universal, that if you get close to a particular technology, the way you experience time is relative, and that's all I'm prepared to go into right now. It's important. It's an aspect of this topic that should not be ignored, unquote. And the, the host, Martin Willis, actually says after that, that it could also be a part of travel and Lou basically does a thumbs up as though the manipulation of time and, and time side of things in general could actually be related to the the technology behind the, the travel which is interesting because it does kind of suggest a lot of the things that Hal Puthoff has talked about where if, if you've got a craft that manipulates gravity as part of its propulsion system gravity can actually affect space time as, as we know time passes differently depending on whether you're on the the surface of the earth or whether you're in orbit and that's directly because of the, the earth's gravity so something with a, a massive amount of gravity can actually warp space time so it does make sense that if these advanced craft are actually using that kind of propulsion system it makes sense that if you get close to them you know time will pass differently closer to the craft and all this that we've heard about theoretical science behind like your warp bubbles and all the rest of it it does seem that there are some links there and and the way that lou mentions that they were told some of this information while they were in a tip interesting to consider so the next thing to, to talk about is it goes back to what I mentioned earlier about the time traveler comments um, from, from Lou, because there was also something that sort of linked in with that from the uh, podcast UFO Martin Willis interview with Gary Nolan and Lou. And one of the, the quotes that I picked out from that was Gary Nolan said, quote, I've learned enough about Jacques Vallée from constant interaction with him. He lives nearby that his retort would likely be something along the lines of maybe it's something that's trying to look like it's coming from the future unquote so rather than these things that are being witnessed in the sky literally are time travelers coming from the future it's probably not that simple something that valet talks about quite a lot the trickster element of it and the, the almost like a playful sense of humor like the tic-tac object zipped around in a way that seemed to be toying with dave fravor and and then you know a lot of these elements of the phenomenon seem to almost be almost funny like a, a like a joker and um, and you know it could be that there's a lot of elements of deception involved with whatever we're dealing with here and if that is the case then the time traveler thing may be just how it's wanting to present itself you know who knows what we're actually dealing with here at the end of the day nobody really knows which is a very important thing to, to remember but we are hearing a lot about time in general and as i've said on the on the podcast before i'm not really convinced by the time traveler hypothesis in terms of that's what's going on here it's future humans coming back to warn us about something bad that's going to happen i don't think it's going to be as simple as that but on the other hand there's definitely some element of of time manipulation going on we hear about people with missing time clocks that you know don't add up to the you know like a watch that, that five hours will pass but that they feel like there's only a few minutes have passed and things like that abduction accounts that's quite common to hear about but anyway there's definitely some elements of time manipulation time things um to watch out for and just to keep an eye on uh, as we move along and i'm sure we'll hear more about this but anyway let's get stuck into some of the other quotes uh, from these these interviews so Lou's talking about Gary Nolan and he mentions uh, Gary Nolan's credentials and the things that he's done working behind the scenes in the past and, and Lou says quote Gary is true national treasure it's absolutely incredible what he's been able to do for us unquote and he goes on to say that basically hopefully the public will learn to what extent Gary has been involved in what what he's done behind the scenes because obviously that at the moment can't be revealed but Gary says, quote, Lou and I are looking forward to working together now in, let's say, some more formal manners that we'll be able to talk about in the near future. For me, more on the academic side, Lou more on the things that he's been doing before. 
I think the community at large is going to be thankful for how we're trying to make this more transparent, unquote. Now, I thought that was a really interesting quote because we're talking about there's some kind of collaborative effort that both Lou and Gary are involved with that they're going to be doing in the future that is going to be a lot more transparent with the public. He actually mentions as well, I don't think I wrote this particular quote down, but Gary Nolan actually said one of the key um, things that had to be in place for his involvement is the transparency, the openness with the public. And uh, I thought that was really interesting. Now, I don't know exactly what they're getting at here, um, and I might come back to this point later, but Gary Nolan has mentioned a few times that he has been doing all of this analysis, this research, off his own back, basically out of his own pocket and spent quite a lot of his money. And he's mentioned that he would be applying to the UAP office for funding to be able to carry out his research. So is what they're doing going to be attached to this new UAP office in some way possibly is there going to be a new organization that they're both involved in possibly is it going to be something that's somehow attached to the Galileo project and there because we both you know both of those guys are, are involved in to some extent in the Galileo project possibly is it going to be all of the above possibly but it all sounds very exciting and i'm just glad both of those guys are going to be involved in the topic going forward because as i said lou elizondo has been in in the interview saying that he's not going to be doing as many podcasts and things of that nature but he is still going to be involved behind the scenes from the looks of things which is a great thing so lou goes on to say uh, as well about the actual formation of this new office, etc. Um, so, quote, and this is quite a long quote, but I think it's worth reading out. So Lou says, quote, In this particular case, the legislative branch has put a sufficient amount of pressure on the executive branch to do the right thing. You now have the establishment of the AOI MSG office. As of today, the funding bill was signed. So there's actually funding for this capability that will reside within my old office under the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. There is some renewed commitment by senior leaders in the US government to continue to tackle this topic and keep it as a priority. Major kudos to Avril Haines, our first female director of national intelligence. She is taking this topic very seriously and she's not looking to pass the book. I think there's been some renewed energy, if you will, within my old office, the USDI. The primary concern initially was that they were going to go ahead and subordinate this office the way they did before when I was in the USDI. And it looks like that may not be the case. Individuals that had a chance to do the right thing and failed will not be given another chance to manage this portfolio and they will bring in fresh blood, unquote. So that is definitely an interesting development because... I talked about this on the podcast before, the fact that they may try to use this AOI MSG office to basically kind of, um, you know, throw us a bone, anybody who's interested in this topic, throw us a bone, give us this, this office, but actually we're not going to be able to see anything of their results, it's potentially all going to be classified, and that the AOI MSG itself is not in a position to be able to fulfil the requirements of the uh, Gillibrand Amendment. And what we may see is a bit of a damp squib, you know, a bit of a disappointment. But and, and, and part of the reason I was concerned about that was because of comments from Lou, because he was very concerned about the, the inner workings of the USDI and the fact that we may not get what we actually wanted from the wording of the Gillibrand Amendment. Now, that seems to have changed. Part of the reason that has changed is because of Avril Haines, uh, who is taking it seriously. As Lou says, they're not wanting to pass the book, and they seem to have had a bit of a clear out. So the people who were dragging the feet, the people who weren't doing what they're supposed to do, now are not in the position to be able to do that anymore. They've brought in fresh blood, new people who are looking at things differently, who are actually going to, you know, hopefully do things right and be able to actually give us some of the answers that we as the public want to know about this kind of thing. So I'm quite quite uh, energized by that, quite pleased to hear that Lou is actually reassured to an extent that, that this work is going to be carried out and it's, it's it's going quite well behind the scenes so i'm very pleased about that and now there's actually funding for this capability 
as as Lou puts it there. Now that that's actually all been signed into uh, in, into place, the funding bill has been signed. We may see things like whatever effort it is that Gary Nolan is going to be working on, applying for funding and be able to actually get funding. Because if you remember, the actual wording of the, the Gillibrand Amendment is that funding will be provided as required so there's no kind of cap as such on how much funding that they can actually get it's just whatever they need will potentially be funded and you've got to remember that you know ATIP uh, sorry uh, RSAP which got the the, the 22 million um, funding is actually sounds a lot of money but it's actually not compared to the actual overall budget so we might actually be looking here at quite a well-funded operation which is bringing in expertise of, of potentially people like gary nolan and maybe even lou elizondo i think that might be what he's getting at here but as i say i don't know that for sure we'll have to see how it all plays out but Gary Nolan also goes on to make some comments about the kind of project that he's going to be involved in, which, as I say, I'm not. it's not clear whether it's going to be a... I mean, my speculation on it is that it's probably going to be some kind of private organisation that perhaps gets funding from this UAP office, but is actually a, 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 an outside contractor, a bit like the Galileo project. And perhaps some elements of the work that that organisation does actually informs the UAP office and takes funding from it. But also at the same time, there's a, a side of that organisation, that, uh, that project, whatever you want to call it, that is also public facing, which actually gives information directly to the public. I could be totally wrong on that, but that's the impression that I get. But about whatever project it is that they're going to be looking at going forward, Gary says, quote, the project overall needs a scientific inclination and someone who runs, who's run large projects scientifically and knows what's required for the publication. How you do it right? How do you not go overboard? How do you caveat the writing of it so that no one walks away with the wrong interpretation? Unquote. And then he also goes on to say about his expertise, quote, I'm not a metallurgist, but I know enough to bring in the right kinds of people and to garner the type of instrumentation in one place to create a pipeline to do the analysis. I wasn't able to do that before, to do it correctly. I did it all out of my own pocket. It cost me about $50,000 or so out of my own pocket to do the, the, the work that went into the Council Bluffs paper, unquote. Now, I think just uh, a point of interest, I think Gary Nolan has previously said $70,000 in, in other interviews, but you know I don't think he's actually sat down and, and done an exact calculation. So but the, the, the main takeaway there is he spent a lot of his own money to pursue the analysis of these materials and now what he's, he's saying and again he said in other interviews is that he's now going to be actually applying for funding to carry out this research and goes on to talk about the actual equipment as well and uh, says quote if you're talking about an actual piece of technology that you want to understand you need to understand it right down to the atomic level and to do that, we need new kinds of instrumentation. So for the last two or three years, I've actually been working on something, unquote. And it kind of goes on to say that in biology, the ultimate picture is the atomic structure. And he mentions that form equals function and that he's focused now on rather than using existing processes to analyze materials and come up with basically unsatisfactory answers. He's actually just been working on some new tech which will give better answers. And this can be used for his world leading research on cancer. And I think part of his approach is basically to develop this uh, equipment, which is going to be able to look into cancer, which is obviously a topic that has massive amounts of public support because it's something that affects all of us and, and quite rightly so. But also that technology could also be applied to other areas such as UAP, um, you know, debris analysis. So it'd be very interesting to keep an eye on that. And just a few other comments then. Um, Lou goes on to say uh, as well, quote, we discovered that there was another living organism that's been sharing the planet with us, which it's biomass. If you were to take all of the biomass of all the animals, all the biomass of all the plants and all the biomass of all the fungus together wouldn't equal up to the biomass of this living kingdom that we've been sharing this planet with that's been invisible to us all along. And that is 
this whole kingdom of microorganisms, unquote. So clearly there, what Lou's talking about is the possibility that there may be something else on this planet. Uh, Lou's mentioned it in the past in terms of what if we realise we're not top of the food chain? Very interesting comment, I thought, that he mentioned. I forget where it was exactly, but he had mentioned that at some point in the past. And what if there is something else on this planet? And he goes on to say, quote, Is it possible that during the time of the evolution of our species that some sort of intelligent life has found us first, or perhaps has cohabited with us? Oceans are huge, and we now know, I'm sorry, and we are now seeing that there is a direct correlation between UAP, unidentified aerial phenomenon, and potentially USOs. These are like UFOs, but underwater. Are they the same thing? They've been here the entire time. We don't know yet, but it's certainly a question that we're going to have to ask ourselves if we're going to be truly honest with ourselves, unquote. So again, very interesting there, this connection with the oceans and objects going under the water. There's been so much talk of that, you know, over the years of, of triangles coming out of the water. I remember reading about that like 10 years ago, just one of the kind of dipping my toe in the water moments that I had with the UFO topic. Um, I remember hearing about that a long time ago, and there's obviously been some of these uh, released clips that show an object actually going under the water as well there's been a few clips like that and it's interesting to hear Lou talking about that again and what that sort of makes me think about is a few possibilities really first of all one that I've been pondering a little bit recently which is if there is some kind of intelligence out there somewhere else in the universe and they've come here to this planet okay some people might say that's a big if some people might say that's not at all a big if. I suppose it depends where you stand on that. But if there is another intelligence out there, they've managed to find us maybe a million years ago. They found some life on this planet. Maybe they only found us fairly recently. Who knows? But what you would do is probably leave some kind of monitoring capabilities on this planet. And it seems like a fairly reasonable hypothesis to me to think that they may have left some kind of large you know like a base for want of a better way of putting it underneath the sea and then some kind of monitoring capabilities to keep keep tabs on us and to keep an eye out for you know what weapons capabilities we've got and and that that may explain the interest in our nuclear facilities that there's clearly a connection between uap and nuclear facilities and it would also go some way to explain the oceans thing now Another way to consider the same thing there is the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, which is something that I was talking about recently with an article written by Dave Smethurst, friend of the show, Dave Smethurst, who, um, who we may have uh, talking about crypto-terrestrial uh, things on the podcast again, as he did in his first uh, episode that we did with the Voices of the Community thing. And the thing about the, the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis, again, a couple of different ways you could look at it, but essentially, if there is a advanced civilization that's been here on Earth all along, and maybe hidden in plain sight, as it were, the oceans are absolutely vast. It's a good place to hide if you did want to have some kind of advanced civilization here on Earth. And again, that would definitely go some way to explain some of the things that are basically mysteries on this planet like we obviously we know about the ufo mystery there are things in the skies that we can't explain which seem to go in and out of the water in some cases but also we're talking about you know structures and 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 objects which can't really be explained in the historical records such as the 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 megaliths and the amazing precision of the boxes in the Serapium in, in Egypt and the walls at Machu Picchu and all of these various different walls around the around the, the, the globe which have been made with unbelievable precision out of enormous blocks thousands of years ago to the point where we would struggle to make them now. And it could be that things like these structures which are found were created perhaps in conjunction with some kind of advanced civilization that is actually here on earth has been here all along and perhaps went underground quite literally in some cases or just you know had to hide itself away during previous cataclysms that have happened on the planet i mean it's not even a particularly outrageous theory anymore to consider that there was there's cataclysms as, as recent as twelve thousand years ago 
And if that's the case, there could have been a fairly thriving advanced civilization here on the planet before that. And perhaps then they had to go into hiding but during a cataclysm and just never revealed themselves again. And humans are rebuilt, you know, and whatever other crypto terrestrial civilizations are here could perhaps still be here and living you know hiding in plain sight as such we don't we we wouldn't have any idea they were there and they would have no reason to reveal themselves to us apart from perhaps to um monitor our capabilities and keep tabs on us because they share the planet with us having said that i do have i mean that is a hypothesis and i do have some questions about that myself i'm not saying i think that that is the case one of the main ones for me is with crypto crypto terrestrial uh, hypotheses is that if that was the case you would think they would have done a hell of a lot more to stop all of the nuclear testing because nuclear testing in some cases happens in the oceans now you could say that it's just geographically distant from uh, where the tests happen to where they are you know that's a possibility but it just seems to me if there was something sharing this planet with us would they have let us do the things that we've done to this planet particularly in terms of nuclear testing because that has had a very destructive effect on certain areas of the world and i would say that that that's a, a, you know a fairly kind of a fly in the ointment of that hypothesis it doesn't kind of make that much sense to me that they would sit back and allow us to pollute the environment create these you know massive you know expanses of floating plastic in the ocean and do nuclear testing you know if they share this planet with us would they really let it go that far it's a it's a question that that, that perhaps does give a bit of a fly in the ointment to that hypothesis but i i definitely remain open to it because there's also other areas that it, it does kind of make sense of but again everything's got to be on the table until it's no longer on the table as they say but i'm going to get into the last uh, point and this is arguably the most interesting point of all so brace yourself for this one because this is a bit of a mind boggler a bit of a mind blower so in what i would describe as a bombshell comment Lou is asked about any updates on the very clear 23 minute video and this is a video that's been discussed quite a lot and there's various people have come out and said they've heard about the video some people have said that they've seen it I believe Lou has seen it I've heard in another interview but I can't remember where that Lou said that he saw the video um, but I'm not 100% on that. But I have heard other people saying that they've heard of, they've spoken with people who have seen it, and, and other people have said that they've seen this video. And apparently, it's very, very clear and very compelling, and it's 23 minutes long. So you can imagine there's a lot there to analyze. So Lou says, he's asked about some updates on this video, and he says, quote, Yeah, let me tell you what I can tell you. There's a 23 minute video that's very compelling it's very clear it's taken from a very sophisticated platform i cannot say the platform or the circumstances in which it was taken because we have to protect sources and methods but the video itself should at some point be able to be released unquote mic drop explosion sound fireworks going off <laughs> yeah because Lou's basically saying there that this video itself should at some point be released. So whatever this 23-minute video is, if he's describing that it's very clear and it's taken from a sophisticated platform and it's 23 minutes long, although it is possible that we'll only get a clip out of that, but still, this is not going to be a nothing burger. It can't be. I mean, he wouldn't be describing it like that and so many people wouldn't be talking about it so much if it was nothing. So the fact that Lou is now saying that at some point it, it sh he actually says the video itself should at some point be able to be released. That suggests to me that he's been working on getting this thing released behind the scenes and there's probably hurdles to go through. There's probably certain elements of data that need to be taken off the video so that you don't give away the sources and methods. But the fact that he says should is different to saying could. Now, I might be overanalyzing the language used here, but to me, the video itself should at some point be able to be released, suggests that it's a lot more likely than could. And I would maybe it's wishful thinking, but it seems to me that that's, that's quite an exciting little quote there. A bit of a mind blower, if you ask me. 
So that is definitely a, a real positive thing that we can look forward to if we're trying to get some answers on what's going on here. And as we know, it has been quite some time now since a compelling video came out. You know, there was the regular sort of leaked videos from uh, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp. And uh, obviously going back to TTSA first coming out, there was the videos, the three Navy videos that we all know about. But it's been quite some time since there's been anything new video-wise. Obviously, there was the rubber duck, but probably a little bit underwhelming and and uh, so on. But, yeah, it sounds as though there are big things in the works, and the 23-minute video is one of them. So that's definitely something to keep an eye on. But moving on then quickly to the last few bits and pieces, um, I just wanted to read out a, a little a perfect tweet from uh, John Greenwald. So John Greenwell from the Black Vault um, is, you know, sometimes can be a bit of a controversial figure. Um, but I think with this particular quote, he absolutely nailed it. And it was one of those tweets that you'd want to frame and stick on the wall. <laughs> so Mick West had tweeted, uh, Congressman Tim Burchett says there's a UAP related cover up. Interesting kind of like cryptic tweet that Mick West does to bait people into commenting on it so he can then, you know, give him grief. Uh, but then John Greenwald uh, quoted that tweet and said, if anyone denies the cover-up, they aren't looking at provable, verifiable official evidence. Not even you, Mick West, I think, would deny that. At least I would be surprised. This cover-up is easily provable. Now, a cover-up of what exactly? That's up for respectful debate which I thought was a brilliant way of putting it because one thing that is absolutely undeniable in this topic is the cover-up. And this is what I found when I was doing the crash retrieval series on the podcast. It's just undeniable that things have been covered up. I mean, you can get into debates and argue and speculate all day long about what it is exactly that's being covered up, but there is no question about the cover-up itself that is now basically a fact and i think if you deny that i don't know what to say to you but then uh, jason colavito uh, the sort of like skeptic slash troll on the ufo twitter replied to that saying is there any aspect of government that doesn't engage in ass covering and obfuscation if you want to say this version is special you need to be able to demonstrate it is categorically different from all the other cover-ups i would posit that it's not so, you know, I guess a fairly reasonable tweet, that. Um, but John Greenwald replies to it, and this is the golden tweet. Well, pause it away then. However, I approach it differently. I research, collect evidence, weigh the value, see what is provable, see what is not, publish it for all to see, and I believe that it is clear this is different. You are guessing because you seemingly don't care to look, which I think is pretty much the perfect reply and it's done in a way that's very respectful doesn't call him an idiot doesn't doesn't abuse him it just just lays it out how it is and this is the thing about john greenwald this is a man who is a fairly skeptical individual and he is very thorough i mean i wish i was as thorough as john greenwald you know the fire king as lou elizondo recently referred to him as this is a guy who's been obsessed with digging into the government's archives to find you know documented evidence of of anything to do with ufos and a lot of other areas as well actually um and you know if you're going to take anyone's word for it about whether or not there's been a cover-up based on actual documented evidence which has been retrieved from government archives, it's John Greenwald. So by this point, you know my personal, you know, research that I've done, without any doubt, points towards a massive government cover-up on this topic. And if you don't believe me believe John Greenwald because he's obviously come to the same conclusion there. So I thought that was worth mentioning. And then just to finish off on, uh, because uh, I've mentioned about this uh, recently as well, so I thought it was worth giving a little update on the James Webb Telescope, because we're going to see the James Webb Telescope, you know, as we move along, we're going to see actual data coming back, and, and who knows what it will see, uh, put it that way. So uh, NASA have released an update now, which says, 
following the completion of critical mirror alignment steps, NASA's James Webb Telescope team expects that Webb's optical performance will be able to meet or exceed the science goals the observatory was built to achieve. So basically, not only is it on track, it looks as though the, the capabilities that it will have now everything's calibrated and aligned is actually going to be as good or possibly even better than what was hoped for. So on March the 11th, the web team completed the stage of alignment known as fine phasing. And at this key stage in the, the commissioning of Webb's optical telescope element, every optical parameter that has been checked and tested is performing at or above expectations. The team also found no critical issues and no measurable contamination or blockages to Webb's op optical path. The observatory is able to successfully gather light from distant objects and deliver it to its instruments without issue. So absolutely fantastic. And there was also a telescope alignment evaluation image, which was uh, which you can actually see if you go to NASA's website uh, where the James Webb Telescope updates are. And uh, the purpose of the image was to focus on a particular bright star for alignment evaluation. And uh, Webb's optics and NIR cam are so sensitive that the galaxies and stars seen in the background actually also show up as well and you can see this image it's a really bright twinkling star looking thing but it just shows how how accurate and how detailed the images coming back from the telescope are you can also see all these galaxies in the, in the distance in the background which is really fascinating to see taken from the James Webb Telescope, which is now a million miles away from the Earth, and this thing's beaming back these kind of really, really high-quality images, which is just so fascinating. And to think what it else, what else it's going to see, you know, as it carries out its mission. So it says, although there are months to go before Webb ultimately delivers its new view of the cosmos. Achieving this milestone means the team is confident that Webb's first-of-its-kind optical system is working as well as possible. So really good news there uh, on the James Webb Telescope. And it says also, just to finish off, the team is on track to conclude all aspects of optical telescope element alignment by early May, if not sooner, before moving on to approximately two months of science instrument preparations. Webb's first full resolution imagery and science data will be released in the summer. So that's what we've got to look forward to in the summer, people as well as potentially this 23-minute uh, video, eh? We'll see how that one goes. And it sounds like there's a lot in the pipeline with Gary Nolan, Lou Elizondo, whatever project or organisation that they've got in the works there. And Gary Nolan's working on this new equipment to analyse materials down to the atomic level absolutely fascinating to see and a lot to look forward to this year i mean we knew that at the beginning of the year but the way that things are actually shaping up very very exciting time to be looking into this topic so thank you very much for listening and uh, don't forget you can go to patreon we've got a great little community building up on the patreon at the moment we've got uh, more and more people joining and early access to episodes you get on there it's literally a couple of couple of dollars uh, if you're in america or obviously wherever your currency is per month and basically the price of a cup of coffee and you get early access to episodes they always go up at least a day or two early Sometimes I put interviews up two weeks early um, on Patreon. You can listen to it directly through the Patreon app as well, which is really good for listening to podcasts. I support a lot of other podcasts on Patreon as well, and um, I support them and listen to their podcasts early access. And it's just nice to be able to comment on the podcast and things, discuss it with the podcasters. I always reply to anybody's comments on Patreon. So, and it, and it really helps me to keep the podcast running and pay all the associated costs and hopefully as things progress i may be able to spend a bit more time actually working on the podcast and uh, making better content for you guys and it's something i absolutely love to do so every bit of support on patreon really helps towards that goal so do feel free to to jump over on patreon and support the podcast if you are able to do so if not even just listening to the podcast really really helps and actually something i've realized because i've been getting emails from people about this 
is when you leave a, a positive review on Spotify or Apple Music or whatever your chosen platform is, if you leave like a five-star review, obviously if you enjoy the podcast, um, that then actually boosts the podcast up and it means because of the algorithms, it actually gets recommended to more people. Now, I'd heard about this, but I'm not the most tech-savvy person, to be honest with you, so I didn't really understand it. But I'm getting emails off people now literally saying, I just discovered your podcast through Spotify recommendations and you know i really like it and it's so interesting thanks for you know for doing what you do which is showing me that these spotify recommendations really are getting people into the ufo topic so if you do get the time just go to the top of spotify um, or whatever your platform is and just leave a little five star uh, review rating of the podcast i'm not sure you even have to type anything in i didn't realize how quick it was to do until the other day i reviewed somebody's podcast five star it takes a few seconds and every one of those just helps more people to get involved and helps to to you know improve the uh, the recommendation uh, that, that spotify gives so that other people can get involved in all of this which is definitely something we want to encourage um, and it really helps the show and helps everything to progress so anyway that's about all we've got time for for today thank you very much for listening if you've made it this far you really are a hardcore listener of the podcast so thank you very much and i'll catch you in the next episode UFO Thinker Podcast.